Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Derek Feldman is Managing Director of Influence SG, the Movement Design Studio, and the Managing Director of Ad Council Edge, the Ad Council Strategic Consulting Division, advising during the formative stages of public engagement programs. He's a well-known researcher and advisor for causes and companies on social movements and issue engagement, and the author of three books, Social Movements for Good, How Companies and Causes Create Viral Change, Cause for Change, The Why and How of Nonprofit Millennial Engagement, and most recently, The Corporate Social Mind, published by Fast Company Press in June 2020. Derek, thanks very much for hanging out and talking with me today. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. It's been a long time, and I know that a lot of your work, when I think of you, has been revolving around these massive reports on millennials (laughs) particularly. But I always think of it as rising generations. I don't know if that's the right term. Um, but we're in the middle of these massive social movements as you and I talk, um, and largely they appear to be leaderless, but they're very active and there are a lot of young people visibly at the forefront. And I want to ask you about that along with the other things we'll talk about, just to see what your read is on the current movement of young people to speak out. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you associate me with massive reports. I think that's a good thing. My research colleagues would really enjoy that. <laughs> Some of my other marketing colleagues would probably think they're too long, Derek, which I was sometimes I used to hear a lot. I, I remember, I think, uh, Jay, our longest report ever was around 90 pages long. And I vowed from that moment that just because I thought everything was so interesting, it wasn't necessary to put into a PDF. So um, we, we, we've later paired that back. I think our last report about three weeks ago was seven designed pages. Um, and uh, as somebody who is the author, I mean, I author them with my research team, but uh, I'll tell you, it's always a hard one. So <laughs> thanks for that introduction or, or, con- or opening at least. Well, so so tell me, I, I mean, you've been looking at this for a long time, and now, I guess beyond the uh, those reports that you did for 10 years, uh, you've also been issuing a, a relatively new report. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of give you what's been, what's been happening, uh, because a lot of this really goes into what I and my team have learned, honestly, since, um, you know, for, for doing this. Uh, for more than a decade. So uh, for some of you who may be listening and, and don't know a little bit about the work that we've been doing for for more than a decade, I, my, my primary focus is looking at young Americans overall. And specifically, my focus is on how those young Americans get involved with social issues. Mm-hmm. I will say that early on, you know, when we started the Millennial Impact Project, which is really the larger body of work that I spent a decade on, that, that piece was really focused on what millennials were really doing. And we got to the why every year in, in, in different unique ways. We did qualitative and ethnography and, and all different kinds of research methods get there. But essentially, we were, we were really documenting for more than a decade how the largest generation in America was coming of age uh, through elections and social issue engagement and so on. And I would say that it was probably around five years in, about midway point. I remember sitting down with Gene Case, who in, in, in the Case Foundation, who who underwrote everything. I mean, I I couldn't thank them enough for more than a decade of funding research because for those of my colleagues in the research field, that, that's a gift that's that's not often uh, um, uh, available, quite honestly. And I remember this this halfway point, sitting down and talking about that. I feel pretty confident 
that we understand what's happening because the, early on it was like, what are millennials going to do? And it, we, we, we answered that every year and we, and we started to see repetition and repetition is a good thing when you start to, to notice things and, and coming out and saying, this is, this is what we anticipate or what has happened and, and it continue that way. But at that mid-year point or, mid, or the halfway point, five years in, there are two things that I started to really realize that gets to the heart of, I think, what the question is and, and what we're living through right now, quite honestly. And that is the broadening of what it means to do good overall. And the second thing is how a young person views themselves in the role of playing a supporter of a social issue. Uh, historically, to that point, and even in our early reports, we were focused so much on what the field was saying about people and how they engage, right? Our nonprofit sector, Jay, that you and I are involved with um, in many different facets, that has been predetermined, right? We've got a fundraising department because the role the public plays is a charitable donor or a donor in general. We've got a volunteer team because that's a, a position and role that the public plays is the giving of one's time. And some of our departments have advocacy where we ask them to, and what's really, really interesting about this is our advocacy efforts were always mostly to be overly engaged. Those that were willing to go to the Hill and do all of these kinds of things that you would normally think of in traditional advocacy shops. And so halfway through, I started building this hypothesis to this point that saying there is no donor, volunteer, advocate. There is a supporter of an issue. And young people were blowing that traditional notion up, and it was getting people really challenged in how to think about it. Because instead of approaching it and saying, well, uh, if you believe in that issue and you believe in that cause, We've got these roles for you to take, which is be a donor, be a volunteer, be a high-level, highly engaged advocate in, that, in this way. And young people weren't doing that. And, and I don't know about you, but when young people don't do the way that you want them to do, we start to get a little irritated sometimes. And we look at it and say, something's wrong with them or they're not engaging. And I'm saying, well, actually, we have an evolution of what we see in the nonprofit sector and how people want to view themselves as social issues overall. And one other thing started to really change too, that sort of coupled with this notion that it doesn't necessarily take dollars to persuade change. Um, for so many people, you know, even my mom, I, I, my mom would say to me, you know, so-and-so has cancer, therefore I should donate to say the American Cancer Society or, or whatever it is traditional role filling and, and so forth. And I would come along and say, well, wait a minute, why don't we do these other things? And she said to me one time, well, I just want to give. That's all I want to do. And I'm like, great, you should do that. But I don't necessarily think in this particular moment, what we're dealing with, with the family member who has cancer is going to be the most effective. But it doesn't mean I'm a non-giver. It just means that Right now in this moment, I want to tell everybody else to learn and educate about what our family member went through, friend and colleague. To me, using my voice in this moment has more impact to me than giving a $10 donation. But it doesn't mean I'm substituting. It just means that it's right now more relevant. And when we see young Americans being incredibly vocal young people of color sort of standing up and being a part of things, not necessarily giving their charitable donations and defying the traditional roles of philanthropy and nonprofit sector, we start to get really nervous. And so I have spent all my years trying to demystify that sort of position of how young people approach it. And it was around that five-year point where I said, we have to stop looking at just what is happening but spending more time getting to know young people and how they take this supporter mentality in the moment. So we were looking at things like the election, the 2016 election and 2018. And, and now we really, really focus on our new body of research on what's called cause and social influences, which is really the influences behind one's action in that moment. 
why does somebody do what they do for that social issue and who's persuading them to do it either way? And essentially, that's where our body of work work has led us. It's been it's been quite a journey. I will say that for sure. There's a lot to unpack in there too. And but I have to go back to that story with your mother. So uh, that may have been in the middle of your journey or at the beginning. I'm not sure, but it does speak to maybe that generational focus that you've had. And uh, what what inspired you in the first place? Did you identify with the millennials? I mean, people who are listening can't see you. They don't know how old you are. So how did you identify yourself? Why did you become interested in uh, young people and their involvement in social change? Yeah. So I um, I grew up in southern Illinois, about an hour and a half southeast of St. Louis, town of a thousand. And in fact, actually, Aviston, Illinois is where it is, if anybody knows it, which I doubt anybody really would. Um, I remember leaving for college that day. and they had the week or two before that kind of put up the sign that said Aviston, Illinois, population 1000. I may have brought it down. Like the sign was technically incorrect, probably till the next person <laughs> had a baby. So it was quite an interesting crowd. But for me, I didn't grow up. I mean, my, I, I shared this in my second book about my experience with my mom. Um, that I, I went home for Thanksgiving one year because I have always struggled with why I have this particular interest, but uh, like, where did it come from? Maybe I was born in, in, with this sort of innate interest in, in all of this. And my mom just sort of subtly did this. And I, I joke in my book that I went home and I found a picture of my mom um, in myself uh, <laughs> in a shoebox. That was us. She was signing me up for Hands Across America, which was for any of you who know, it was the largest, one of the largest social movies, like the ice bucket challenge of that year. And I remember running out of the room and saying, mom, oh my gosh, you know, like I knew it. I had figured it out. Right. I've like, this is like the coveted thing. And, and I said, we've been always active in social issues. And she looks at me and she's like, no, we never did. We just decided to go to it because it was happening. And I was like, oh no, like, no, 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 that can't be it. You know? And, and so um, that was one of the things that happened. But but right out of, uh, I was a governor's intern, actually, in the state of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And when you're a governor's intern, and this is my only shortest bout of, of politics, to be quite honest. I've, I've never been involved in anything else. And, and I remember during that time, when you, when you were in a position where people, especially as interns, governor's interns, you have to listen and take a lot of the grunt work, to be quite honest, of listening to constituencies and, and hearing from populations. And in the state of Illinois, you've got two very different different places. You have Chicago, and then you have where I grew up, which is a town of a thousand, right? So totally different. And I was in charge of like hearing the challenges of Illinois residents and what they were dealing with. And we're trying to address issues at that time. And from that moment, I was like, well, I would hear something right from older generations, and but then I knew that wasn't me, or it wasn't the people that I grew up with, or mm. it was quite different. So my interest in social issues came from that experience, and I had a lucky opportunity after that. I went to the School of Philanthropy at IU, and you know, I was at that same time I was working working in an organization called Learning to Give, which was a Kellogg funded initiative to inspire philanthropic behaviors in the K twelve system, and. Um, and I was, was with that group for about nine years. And my interest was always around research, which is really my passion. And, you know, quite honestly, where my academic stuff comes from. And, and so after that, I just realized that the biggest particular opportunity of change um, comes in these or unique ways of positioning and behavior, attitudes and perceptions comes during our formative years. Everything that I learned from learning to give and teaching people at the K-12 it's really when they start to move out of that academic setting and be amongst peers and friends and you realize, wow, there is a really interesting behavioral during things that happen behaviorally during those formative years that led to my interest overall. So it was, it was definitely a couple of key things that, that were there that inspired me to this point to kind of look at it and say, this is really where I hone in you know, my interest. It's interesting because when you talk about this, of course, you're describing those formative experiences and the generation that you're you're in and the need to listen 
to that generation and in, in, in the same way that you were listening in the governor's office to the calls from maybe a generation that had come before, maybe your mother's age, maybe older. And now, of course, you've gone through, uh, you've written these books, you've worked at these organizations, you were there, the man behind Achieve, and, uh, and you're doing your work today, releasing a new book, but that means also a few years have gone by. So when you look at, out at the change that's happening today and the, the rising generation with it, do you see similarities and differences between millennials and Generation Z? I'm not, I'm not in love with these terms, but, but for the purpose of trying to draw distinctions, if there are any to be drawn, what, what do you see yeah. as being the big differences or similarities and, and why maybe they're driving some of the things that are happening right now? One thing I learned early on, and and I have, you know, I I sit above many, you know, I I have I've had the opportunity to work with many people before me as well that have focused on generations. And one of the, I remember sitting down with two or three generational researchers, and you know, talking about this this thing that we were about ready to start. Because I mean, Jay, when we started the Millennial Impact Project, there was no study around social issue and young people engagement like what we were proposing. And I remember talking about that. Um, I mean, I remember the first time with the, the public or the, the media called me for an interview. I, you know, we had three people. I picked up the phone and it was the Financial Times. And I was like, who is this? I thought it was a joke. I couldn't believe people would be interested in what was going on. And, and I, I remember from sort of that time looking at it. And, and this question, you know, would come up around our comparisons and comparisons are always difficult because of two things. I mean, imagine the 60s with social media. You, some might even say that maybe looks like, you know, what it could have been now or I don't know, you know, and, and, and so there's nothing economically the same. And the other thing, too, is culturally, we change our behaviors as well. You know, and I, I use this common example in terms of generation. My mom, when I moved, um, she said to me, why, why would you live in the city? Why would you ever do that? And I said, um, well, that's where I want to, and I don't want to have a car. And she's like, that seems like a really poor idea. You would take the bus? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely I would. And, but to now this generation, right? So we started to change that to those older generations continue to go back to public transit. And so when you kind of look at it generationally, we go through different waves in how we look at issues. And usually the generations, I mean, millennials didn't wake up one day and said, you know what, I'm for work-life balance, here it is. Brand spanking new policy. I mean, those were things that were built in and it just so happens you have a 80 million population coming in saying, this is not just what we kind of expected, we're demanding um, this. And we're sitting above the other generations that have sort of asked us to move in this direction as well. I mean, I think that is the thing that we have to understand, especially even when it comes from millennial to Gen Z, but there are some differences and they're very clear, at least as we look at it from the participatory behavior side. So in terms of millennials, they were very sort of more they're using platforms, being vocal out there, sharing content, very shareable generation. When we look at a Gen Z side, they're shareable, but they're also in closed communities, which is very interesting from a research perspective, Jay, when you're trying to study it, say an older demographic of Gen Z, which would be 18 to 24, and you're looking at them and you're trying to get at the inside of their peer groups and influences, you have to be invited sometimes. And that's a really difficult thing as a researcher to try to break through. It's not as easy as some millennials who were, you know, growing up with social media platforms were sharing. Everything was just the norm. It was such a freeing opportunity for everything. We've kind of looked back and reversed some of that too. One of the, one of the other things that I often talk about, especially when I work with brands who will bring me in and, and will discuss things related to social issues and where brands should go and especially when they're working with young people. So you can imagine the younger brands or brands that focus on young consumers is Gen Z is very comfortable being in sort of a, a, a space that's undefined where our society asks you to be as defined as possible. And I'm going to give you two particular examples where this comes to light. We have an election in five months. I think Jay, you've heard something about that. Probably that's occurring. 
And when you go to register to vote, there is a binary question that they ask you. You know what that binary question is? Go ahead, tell me. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Or you can opt out to either, but we're already asking people to choose sides. You look at a generation who says, well, what if I, I may not like political identity, but I don't mind a policy. Why can't I be both? Or why can't I, why can't I choose people based upon where they stand in their policies versus one or the other? And so it is completely an undefined. And, and one thing that I learned too in studying just millennials in general is that actually the American population is quite torn on a lot of social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you if you ever work on say some of these hard issues that are going on it's not usually a cut and dry and it requires education to help somebody go from a mindset of being for or anti to another position. But, and so for instance, you know, you might have somebody say, I grew up this way, but I know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to in my head wrestle with that situation. And that's where causes really come in to help educate. And that's the purpose of having supporters or not just financial donors, but are willing to have conversations with people to help them understand how to wrestle with that being torn position or getting to know things a little bit further, which is what we see today as well. But when it comes to Gen Z, far more than our millennials, it's being comfortable being in a position where I don't necessarily have to be forced to choose now. Why can't I support what I believe in and align with values um, and therefore make my choices not in the binary way, but in a way that allows me to express what I believe and align the most with. And I think that that's a difficult position for one, for some organizations and causes and others that want people to be one or the other in kind of the world. And unfortunately, there's a lot of gray area in the world, which I think we've seen a lot, not just this year, but just in general. One last thing I mentioned too about Gen Z and Millennium is that while uh, our older millennials are dealing, you know, their kids, you know, they're having kids and all this. I mean, I mean we, we started the Millennial Impact Project, Jay. The Facebook, literally, I'm making that the in the front of it because that's mm-hmm. what it was called when we were. I mean, there, there was a lot of new things that were happening. None of the social platforms existed when we started. And I remember our first survey, we asked them about like MySpace and all these other things. And it was quite funny, you know, looking back now. But as we see some of these platforms and we see some of these, these other things is that I have, I have witnessed and discovered not, you know, a, a lot of vocalness and use of one's voice and expression as a form of identity and feeling comfortable in that identity than ever before. Millennials are doing that too, but we've seen this being ushered in much uh, a lot with Gen Z as well, which is fantastic, right? It just shows, I, it shows one's belief in issues and so forth. And, and that kind of role and identity and feeling comfortable with something millennials were growing up with and experimenting with social media, that now exists for Gen Z, sort of that. But that's been something that's sort of coming along the way. So hopefully that gives you some ideas of ways that we look at. There's so much more, but hopefully that's a couple. It, it does. It also begs a number of questions, and one has to do with, of course, how that's impacting the nonprofit sphere, as well as those who support it, which I know you've been writing about recently. But before even going there, I'm curious about your thoughts on how this, perhaps uh, the rejection of the binary in terms of political decisions, economic decisions, philanthropic decisions, that if a rising generation says, I don't want to be put in a box. I mean, those are my words, not your, not yours, but mm-hmm. that, that they want to uh, pursue or support a cause uh, or an idea uh, rather than an institution which purports to support that idea or cause. If, if that's true, then that does, I guess, provide a dividing line a little bit between prior generations, which saw like you know, your, your mom, maybe it's time to go and join the, the crowd at Hands Across America. That turned out to be a good thing. Or maybe join Shriners or a lo- another local social service agency, uh, you know, it's something like that, versus today, where um, ero- there's an erosion of uh, joining organizations and political parties. And uh, rather than attaching 
um, uh, a significance to that, I'd just like to ask you, where does that leave philanthropy as we know it? We know that the donor population has declined and that Gen Z is enormous. So what does that mean for organizations that want to try and, and bring good social change to the world, but maybe have to rely on people who don't want to be a part of their, their organization or their brand? Yeah, this is this is something I talk a, a lot about, um, especially with uh, Jay. You could only imagine the amount of organizations started in the 1900s in that first two decades, where I get a phone call and say, "We, I think we need to talk to you." And I usually, you know, when I'm sitting down with them, I start with two things. I ask them what it means to be engaged with their organization, and quite often the response is some notion that really an outlier population it can only fulfill, regardless of age. And today, it's no longer that my social issue change work has to be done through a C3 entity. And that is perplexing to some where that was really the only option when their causes were being formed right to do good it was that was that was the route and when i see young people getting involved and our research supports this we see them not as the only option causes but one of several things whether that be organized or unorganized movements direct philanthropic or direct behavior to the beneficiary and lastly some things through networks and small formalized, small informal to formalized groups of peers or institutions and in, in peer institutional groups in some way. But, but the difference between that is saying there is a role for causes, but you're not just going to be the only one. And if I was to say, if you, if I wanted to support what's happening right now with say Black Lives Matter or others, I have many organizations that I will support and I will also march and protest and participate in these things because I'm a supporter of the issue first, not necessarily saying, well, the, I'm a supporter of just the organization. I believe in what the organization's work is, but I also have other things I need to do for that issue in addition to it. And what I have discovered is our nonprofit sector has really maintained the roles and tried to redefine it and sort of put another skin on it. But at the end of the day, it had come down to whether you're a supporter as a donor or a supporter as a volunteer or a highly active supporter in general. And most of them are going to go to organizations where they can use the things that they find the most valuable right now in general for change, which is using their voice, using their vote, and getting involved in the policy side of the issues that they care about. And that is a challenging position for organizations who have not been willing to go there or look at individuals not as, value, as valuable or invaluable because they bring dollars to the organization. And that's a really, really difficult place uh, to be in. And if you're a fundraiser, you're gonna hate me saying that. <laughs> I realize that. But that is the reality of kind of where we are. I mean, we. We are seeing people express their desire for the social issues that they care about today through many different ways. Let's not contain it. Let's ask them to organize with us and use it that way in in, in different way. And, and I will say that there's a lot of really great organizations out there working with millennials who have found the right role for them in lifting up others, rather than saying we are your only, we are the source for you you should only be doing work with us and we try to pit ourselves against others. You've talked about uh, recently the reinvention of the nonprofit. And, I, and in one blog you wrote about that, you talked a lot about the tech, yeah. but I think you're talking about something deeper, aren't you? I mean, you alluded to it right there. So when you think about reinventing the nonprofit or maybe the whole C3 sector, what does that look like to you in a way that's more engaging for people and people can decide how they want to engage? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you're <laughs> you picked up on it, Jay, for sure. Um, <laughs> I look at if I was to redesign the nonprofit and this is a unique time. And I, I um, I'm going to give you a little story of that. And I share that 
that in that piece. I had two funders come to me and say, these causes are kind of in this situation and so on. And I said, this isn't about, you know, trying to figure out how to do events and programs digitally. This is about who we're going to be going forward. And this is a really great time to not reset, but also a, a renaissance for the nonprofit sector. And there are two things that are very, very important in this. And it comes down to the first thing we talked about. And the first thing that I realized in my governor's intern is if I was to restructure, I would make sure that the top person would be a chief engagement and chief supporting uh, person that handles the constituency, chief constituency officer. And that officer is not charged with raising dollars, but listening to the constituents that you represent and the people that believe in what you're doing. Because if you truly do that, the dollars, the time, the voice comes with it after that. The challenge, though, is we're organized based upon one's transactional response with us. That is not how people do things today. Our individuals that we want to talk about us, to bring others to our communities, to give us dollars and time, pro bono, skill-based, non-skill, all the categories in general, would be based upon what our supporters are thinking, doing, and believing, and if we're aligned. We need to have those people out there because if, quite honestly, I think our field would be even more diverse than what it is. And it would allow us to truly understand the people that are trying to support the issue, regardless if they're the beneficiary, and the people that we're truly helping in this on this issue overall. Then obviously you need your fundraisers and your marketers and all of that. But what is key is that constituency relationship amongst others. And I always see it tactically written down like they opened 10 emails, they did this and they did this and we'll those are true. Those are good things to measure. Those are good outputs to try to understand uh, overall. At the end of the day, though, it also requires, you know, in the youth space or the movement space, I always say, I don't know who this is talking to because I don't see people sending this message out. I see you, the brand. And I don't have ambassadors that sit down and organize and communicate and and talk to our constituencies on a regular basis. I don't want staff members in states. I would rather prefer highly organized volunteer youth that are part of the movement talking with one another and organizing themselves. That needs to come through, which is a shift away from saying structurally we're focused on setting up volunteer programs, but rather we're establishing to support those that want a program and we build them up. Do companies do a better job of this? than, than not-for-profits. I know, again, I'm putting you into that binary definition, which isn't that one. But <laughs> you do work a lot with companies. And so it's your book, just to make sure I, I mention it specifically, it's coming out, I believe, next month. So that's The Corporate Social Mind um, by Fast Company. But you, you talk in there, I guess, about leading social change from the inside out. First of all, what does that mean? Because that could be interpreted different ways. But also, are companies doing a better job of listening perhaps than our uh, philanthropic reliant brethren? They, uh, well, you know, the, the challenge with generalizations is you're always going to be wrong because it's always mm -hmm. not true. Um, but, but I will say this is that companies have figured out a long time ago based upon consumer needs, how to make products and services that their consumers desire, but also a way to persuade. I mean, that's, that's, that's not anything new. That's just something that has been sort of ingrained in it. But when we think about it, and I, you know, Michael uh, Sieberich and I talk about this in the new book, we, we look at it, and one of the very important chapters in there is around, uh, and, and by the way, the corporate social mind is about how companies create a social mindset in everything that they do. And now more than ever, pandemic and everything else that we're dealing with, we have to be cognizant and mindful of what the people and the places and the things that are happening in and around us. We cannot ignore them. And this is the same thing I would say to the causes and the nonprofits too as well. One of the key traits in there is listens before they act. I'll give you two examples of two companies that do this very well. American Eagle is a company I've worked with in the past. They have a thing called the AE and Me Council. That is a council of 
youth that cover many social issues. They bring them in and they talk to them on a regular basis. They have a consumer insights team that's asking them not just questions about, do you like this product, but also how are you on this social issue? And, and, you know, help us understand. I mean, American Eagle is a brand that's fairly, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're in the middle of America. They're everywhere in America. They're not a left or progressive brand. They're very, you know, uh, in that set that sort of covers all gamuts overall. And that's, that what, that's what the kind of takes today is to sit down and listen to communities and to people before we act. But it also requires you to listen and then bring that into your product services good and your work overall. And I often find that in conversations with those that don't do their homework is, is that they're often thinking about things based upon an inauthentic story that's probably on an outlier in general. Um, and that is often sort of clouded in Gen Z does this, Derek, don't you agree? And I'm like, ah, no, probably not. But let me, you know, let me break it down and, and so forth. But one of the things that's, that's very clear is the difference between the companies and the causes is our causes are set up, beautifully set up to help those who may never get their voice heard in a lot of this. Because a company doesn't have to do that. The good companies do it, right? Our causes, though, that is one of their key things. If you're a museum, if you're a museum, and even if you're the smallest museum in the world, you have a platform to talk to people and create exhibits and programs that let the voice of those that you're trying to tell their story be told. If you're an organization like Color of Change, who's trying to help others understand the bias and the social injustice and things that are going on right now, they have a, they have a large voice that they want you to know about and to act upon it too as well. What, what I am sort of challenged at times is we get in the way of ourselves as we go through this because of how we've been structured for a while and without thinking, if we were listening to the communities of supporters and truly understanding that our philanthropic behaviors would come along, but they're coming along a little bit slower from that perspective. You know, it must be a struggle, though, for any kind of entity, whether it's a for-profit corporation, uh, public or private, whether it's a not-for-profit, a C4, to be able to be themselves. Because what you've been talking about is the necessity of, of being uh, authentic in order to talk with people in a way that's authentic and then let people, you know, if you're listening carefully to your audience and then embodying what you've heard and what you believe in, then it should resonate for people. I know that's not exactly what you said, but I, I wonder if that's a difficult process for companies and not-for-profits to go through when they're not really confident about what they believe in, or at least how to express it in a way that doesn't either alienate other people or put, or especially their, their existing audience or their existing donor base. Yeah, it is. And you know, the times, Jay, I often find those that misstep, and trust me, I've been in brand, I've been in boardrooms where brands have said, you know, hey, we messed up and, you know, what do you think? And I've also been in causes where they've messed up. And, the, the challenge of most or of a lot of those things that happen to sort of this mess up or, or being themselves is when the brand tries to express something that doesn't do a couple things. One is it doesn't authentically tell the real story and people can sniff it out. Two is they're trying to be the voice of it all. And it's not about them. It's about the issue. It's about the people a brand is just a representation of values and beliefs and people that, is, that, that embody it. And the people that either work there or the people that they're fighting for or what they stand for and what their product and services uh, in general. And that's very true in the nonprofit space. You know, one of, the, one of the things is I look at it and I say, well, where did the misstep happen? And I often find that the brand's trying to be the voice instead of the real people who they're trying to fight for. The other thing is, is that they don't really have the community that they're trying to inspire to take action because they're not involved in delivering that message uh, overall. And then the third thing is, is that the story that they're telling 
was changed or altered in a way to try to make it advantageous for that company, brand, nonprofit, whoever that is, rather than for the community in general. That's kind of what has happened when I, when I look at it. Now, it's not every case, but it definitely is a clear case for me when I'm looking at marketing and creative and messaging overall. And I'll often say from the CEO of a or CSR team, or even a big nonprofit or a museum, I'll say, you know what I'd like you to do? I want you to get up there and I want you to welcome the person that's really going to deliver the message. <laughs> They're like, what? And I'm like, yes, it's not about you. This is about the people that you're trying to help and you're going to give them the platform that you've created. And that's a very, very key thing. And that's the difference that we see in more effective companies and others like a Levi's or others that put their social justice leaders that they make investments in at the forefront of their messages or the young people that they're inspiring to vote at the forefront of their message. Uh, and they're telling a very true and authentic message in general where that makes sense to the people that are trying to receive it and say, yeah, I see myself in that. It's really hard when you see a message and you're like, I, I don't know if that really is the case. When that happens, it's usually a fail. There, there is though a kind of cynicism, especially about the the corporate social responsibility aspect of of uh, of corporate life and its impact on the community, and especially about philanthropy. And we saw that bubbling up in big ways at the end of last year, before uh, the pandemic and and the protests. It, it was it was becoming a bigger feature of the discussion, and that cynicism sometimes revolves around greenwashing. Uh, companies engaging in philanthropy and other kinds of activities ostensibly for the public, but appearing to just give them cover. And I'm, uh, in the last few days, uh, there have been some press, I think Forbes listed a lot of companies that are giving to support uh, racial <clears throat> justice efforts, uh, but then uh, other articles coming out almost simultaneously, then talking about, well, what do those companies really do in their business practices? As you're uh, talking about that with companies, and for that matter, we're not-for-profits too. What kind of advice are you offering to them so that they will make sure that their values are truly aligned with their messaging so what they're doing will not be perceived as merely greenwashing? Yeah, good question. So anytime, and I, I, I mentioned this in, a, in the book as well as in some other places, anytime I work with somebody, I always say to them when we sit down, because because it might be a campaign, whether it's a cause or a company. And I'll say to them, well, what's the milestone we're working for? Just that question alone. It used to be, right? By 2030, we're going to, like, you name it. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. What is, what is right now the milestone that we're fighting for that you want people to talk about and be educated about and, and so on? We don't, our world is revolved in what our milestones are for social issue change. <clears throat> One of the things that I learned in the millennial impacts with all the young people that we were, I mean, we had more than 300,000 people we had brought through our studies at some point over a decade. Mm. And I, rem I remember there was this pivotal moment where we were trying to demystify the impact, right? And, and Jay, I'm sure you've seen the fundraising studies that say like donors want to know the impact of their gifts. I mean, it's kind of a given. It's a bad survey question because it's leading and who doesn't want that, right, in general. Um, but we were trying to unpack that a little bit further. And what we discovered in a lot of our qual and ethnography is that young people didn't have an expectation per se that the world was going to be miraculously solved tomorrow because of a $10 gift. They wanted to know that progress was made. The progress was truly made. And I say that to companies. I often say to them, you don't have to be the leader on this, but you do have to be, you have to at least contribute and make progress on it. And let's be clear on what that progress is. Greenwashing occurs when we try to take leadership without milestones and we're not adding progress to our issues overall. And this is the one thing I talk about, too, as well as listening. So one of the first things that our communities need to do is help inform our corporations where they can truly make a difference in the short term, as well as in the long term, you know, and how a contribution, how investments in time and talent make that possible. And so I always focus on milestones. And I, when I can sniff that stuff out, and, and rightfully so, I'm really, really glad that 
um, that, that, that organizations are holding companies accountable because they should be in general. And companies, and like you they were talking about in the last couple of weeks, making all these promises, and now they're being held accountable, which is a good thing, which is what is necessary. And it's necessary not to just fulfill, but it contributes, right? It helps us understand how companies are contributing and helping on an issue so that they can work with others who they need to also help contribute and fill in the gaps in general. And when it's very clear, this is again where somebody can use their voice. You look at, say, Color of Change and the work that they have done. I mean, they work with Pinterest and the Knot and others to stop promoting weddings on plantations and making it sensationalized. That is a very clear milestone that their community and them got together and made, made, made happen. And those are the kind of direct things that are necessary, but also in dialogue that can happen. It's when we approach one another with lofty goals and start to try to make those seem like they're milestones when they truly aren't, where we start to miss that. Yeah. I, I, have, to, I have to say, you speak about all these things with such passion. Where does that passion come from? <laughs> Why, is this so Why is this so important to you? It clearly is. Yeah. Why? Well, so in my world, I, I honestly believe the biggest part of change is how much you put into it and how much that we don't squelch other people's ability to get involved in things. And in, in, when I see people sitting on the sidelines knowing that they have so much to give to things, and I don't mean financially, I mean just give to the issues, because we need people to participate in this process uh, in general. We need people to get involved for the kind of change that we're talking about it. You can't just buy our way through this. You cannot just, just do one way or the other. It's not going to be all about email. It won't all be about social. It'll be about the you know, the sweat and the equity that we all put into on a social issue. And my whole goal, and I remember sitting down at the beginning of the formation of the Millennial Impact Project, I was saying to the team, our goal is was never, never to actually focus just on millennials, but it was also to help nonprofit causes get stronger and even stronger in their job to get people involved. Um, because these organizations that have been around, I don't want them to see it go away. They're very valuable. They play a role, but they only play a role if the people that they're trying to get and surround themselves with see them in that way. And I, and part of it comes from just watching people sitting on the sidelines at times. And, you know, you, you look at some of this, and especially when you're a researcher, monitoring behavior is really, really hard, right? You're like, no, I know you have so much more to give your time and your energy and your spirit because you're talking about it. And so then I'm always trying to demystify that desire to the real action and behavior. And, you know, I'm, I'm as a researcher looking for just trying to help those brands and those causes get closer and closer to narrow that gap between desire and true action. And this is the best way that I have found um, for my own personal uh, sort of manifesto to get there. And that is to truly be research-based and insights and knowledgeable to try to help those causes and brands narrow that gap. And that's clearly how you're helping others. But to each individual, not all change is equal. Not all change is the same or positive. What's the change you're still working to see personally in the world? Yeah, I remember um, uh, my second book was Social Movements for Good, and I was doing a presentation in Berlin, and, and somebody said, do you consider every movement good? Uh, you know, it, it gave way to philosophical discussion for two and a half hours afterwards, um, which was really, really great uh, in, in our way. For me, um, you know, I, I'm going to share something with you all that so i i happen to live next door to the mayor um and this just happened over the weekend so jay this is actually just for you and your friends here so i live next door to the mayor in the city where i where i am right now and and um 6 30 in the morning on sunday morning my daughter came running in and said to me there are protesters outside and i'm a little scared and i said well, it's 6.30 on a Sunday. Let's make sure that's the case. It seemed a little early. <laughs> and, and, and I had spent time with my daughters helping them understand 
everything and talking about race and what's happening right now and why this is a crucial moment. And uh, I looked outside and they all were there, all of our protesters and stuff. And I said, what we're going to do is we're going to get clothes on and you know, cause they were all in their jammies and they're, um, they're 11 and, and seven. And so I, uh, we, we got in there and we walked out there. It was the most beautiful, peaceful protest in my next door neighbor, who's the mayor, watched me walk over and I said, you know, hey, um, you know, I'm going to go walk past the security guards and so forth, right in the front of my house. And um, my daughter said to me, these, these people are fantastic. They're so nice and, and they're so great. So these are, this is what we, we, we hadn't made it down yet to uh, the protest and rally we were going to go uh, today. And I said, yes, this is exactly what it's about. And, and one gentleman came up to my daughter and said, there are three things that we're asking your neighbor to do. And these were the three things, incredibly articulate, so beautifully done. And another person came right up behind and said a cuss word and a couple other things. And my daughter looked at me and I said, that's okay. They're just excited. They just want to use their voice. It's, it's completely, this is what happens when change happens. And you could see out there. And if you ever, ever are curious and wondering and challenged by that the world doesn't have passion and people for our social issues, go to a march and rally and participate because you'll find all of them. And that to me, while some might find it frightening, my daughter initially did, understood the beauty of all of that. And that combined with companies saying they're going to give an actual create change, that's the sort of synergy when you're like, we're in a very amazing moment. And that's beautiful. It's when I see just one entity doing one thing without the voices of so many, it's where I'm often worried that we're not getting the true change that we really desire. So this is an interesting and beautiful moment at times. Thank you so much, Derek. Really appreciate your your thoughts, especially at a time like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'll say to, to all of your listeners and others that it's a beautiful, but challenging. And I, I don't use that word beautiful, meaning that uh, it's a good, it's because we've come to this place, this space and place and time because of, because of the, the lack of, of where we've been and, and so forth. I say it's beautiful because I'm excited that people are using their voices and changes, changes starting to happen. And, that's the part for me as a person that looks at it and thinks this is how social change works. You know, donations, time, using one's voice, combining with sectors like companies, working on policy. This is everybody. This is systems change. That's, that's when stuff starts to happen. That's the catalytic moment that we're in. So I, I hope the causes and leaders that listen to this go out and just observe. This is kind of how change can happen. So... Thanks so much, Jay. I appreciate it. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.